0: tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we speak with David Jilk, who is a serial entrepreneur, software engineer, startup advisor, and an author. His latest book published last week is The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche, which he co-wrote with another living legend in technology, Brad Feld. In this episode, we start off talking about the Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche, and how the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, pronounced Nietzsche and not Nietzsche as I stand corrected, applies to the world of entrepreneurship. As David puts it, this book isn't a playbook of sorts, but a resource to make you contemplate situations. There are sections about strategy, culture, leadership, and so on that are so applicable to the entrepreneurial journey and compel you to think. We then go on to discuss David's background in entrepreneurship and technology. We only began to scratch the surface of AI and the forms it takes, as well as his experience in advising startups. I also enjoyed the part of our conversation where we discussed his experience in advising on the due diligence in acquiring technology companies. He made the point that beyond just code, there's a culture and a belief system of the tech team that must be identified and understood as part of acquiring and integrating the company. I feel this conversation could have gone on for hours. Enjoy this episode and be sure to grab yourself a copy of his new book, The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, well, I, I'm looking forward to this. We reached out with the new book that you have coming. But I think there's our conversation is going to focus a bit on that, but also be much more broad, because you got a really interesting background and, and experience. So the best thing we can do is to kick off with a bit of an introduction about yourself. Can you give us some background? And let's build from there.
1: Sure. I've been an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur for most of my career, You know, starting companies, being part of early stage companies, and most of it, or almost all of it in the software industry or tech. And even my first job out of college was with a startup. And so that's kind of been my career. And until 2013, when I semi-retired to start working on other things whatever those might happen to be writing became one of those things but uh, my background is technical and i kind of moved into being an entrepreneur and a manager and an executive over time
0: i am interested how you went from world of computer science coding entrepreneurship and what brought you into writing what's been the, the well first of for all that? it was
1: something different and uh, you know one of the things is that i had after however many years it was, 25 or 30 years, I had had enough of managing and and being involved in organizations. And I wanted to do something that I could do on my own time, on my own schedule at home or wherever I was. And I've always enjoyed writing. I've always been a pretty good writer. And I think somewhere around five, six, seven years ago, I decided I wanted to just be a better writer for no particular reason. But that was around the time we started talking about this book and about Nietzsche. And so uh, it became one of the things I started working on uh, in my writing. I've written also scientific papers. I've written leases from scratch. I mean, you know, it's a writing, writing is just fun for me. So.
0: Interesting. Well, I want to talk more about your experience because you've worked with some big names. You and Brad Feld have a lot of history, but before I
1: go down that path, I'm just curious, what is your writing process? I don't actually find the writing painful at all. And this may be less unusual than it sounds. I think it's the thinking process that's hard. So in other words, knowing what it is you're going to say and how to say it well, and then realizing, and not everyone does this, if you read much you know that not everyone does this critiquing your own work and also your own ideas that part is can be very hard but really if i know what i'm going to say you know sometimes i'll write an essay and i don't always do anything with them sometimes i just write them for the for the heck of it to see if anything comes of it but if i know what i'm going to say it turning that into words is not hard now i do also write poetry i have a couple of poetry books self published and uh, all the buyers were friends, right? <laughs> <It's not laughs> Poetry is not a thing where you uh, where you get a lot of sales, but... Uh, not a big that, market. Not a big market. And that is a lot harder to do. And, and the process there is completely different. But in some, writing something like this, like the book we're, we're going to talk about, or some of my technology papers or essays, that's really a matter of knowing what you want to say and just saying it. And I don't spend a lot of time... I don't outline things typically. I'll just start writing and then the outline kind of forms itself. And I spend a lot of time editing. I have kind of a, uh, Brad likes to talk about people's superpowers and my superpowers. I can look at a page of text from a distance and see the typos without actually reading it. And so (laughs) I tend not to make a lot of those kinds of mistakes because I see them, but I do read and reread to make sure it's what I want to say.
0: Awesome. I am curious because, you know, you've, as I mentioned, you work with some really big names before we get into talking about the weekly Nietzsche. I want to hear some of the old stories like you and Brad have have had a long relationship, business partners in the past. There's got to be some things, some more stories you guys have had.
1: What, sure. what can you well, share with the, us? You know, the older stories are more fun because we were perhaps a little less experienced in uh, being careful, et cetera. <laughs> a couple that I can think of you know one is that we had a client one of our earliest clients when uh, so our company that Brad and I had together was called Feld Technologies he had started it himself as a one man consulting shop and then I joined him at some point a year in or so and we decided to make it into a into try to make it into a real business uh, beyond just him and he was still an undergraduate at MIT and at that point so he would have been in his very early 20s at that point. And we, one of our first software development clients was a major a venture capital firm that had its offices in Boston. We actually had many uh, clients who were venture capital firms. And I do think it is one of the things that got Brad interested in and, and thinking about venture capital. And I think some of those people he's still in touch with. In any case, this particular client was a fairly conservative. You know, Boston is a very conservative place when, with, with respect to the finance industry. And I think they were wondering just how old we were. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the two lead contacts Took me out for cocktails. They invited me out. I was flattered. It's like, oh, I'm going to have drinks with a client, right? I was, you know, pretty young guy, and they they plied me with alcohol and got me to say. And I didn't realize they were doing this, but they got me to tell them that Brad was only 22, and it led to a bit of a panic. And Brad was, I wouldn't say he was furious with me, but he was kind of irritated because it's certainly not the kind of thing we wanted to advertise, you know. But he had, you know, he had started businesses even when he was in high school, and so he was a young entrepreneur and. So that was, that was an interesting uh, interesting thing, right? I, I was a little older, so, you know, I'm, I'm three years older than Brad. So that was not as much of an issue for them, but still 22 and just graduating from college felt like for a venture capital firm, kind of risky.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. It, you know, it's funny. I, um, I remember being thrown into a negotiation over a patent, actually, by a group I was working with. And I was, I think I was in my late 20s and I'm sitting there and the chairman of the company was a lawyer himself. And we're having a dinner meeting. And I remember my wine glass just seemed to keep on getting right. more and more wine in it. And, it, and then I just clued in. And I'm like, uh-huh, I know what you're up to. And yeah, so I, I didn't take the bait there, but it's something to be aware yeah. of. So, Well, that, that's cool, man. I mean, you guys got a lot of history. That's it's really interesting. So let's talk about the entrepreneur's weekly knee check. And applying philosophy here to the world that, uh, that you're so, so intimately involved with. I was curious in the connection between an 1800s philosopher to what is cutting edge technology. And let's start there. Take us where you yeah, want to go. So,
1: I mean, the way, the way we started with this was not, it was serendipitous. I was reading Nietzsche because I read a lot of philosophy and I had gotten started through a great courses course that was an intro to Nietzsche. I had read a lot of other kinds of philosophy, mainly analytic philosophy and more classical stuff, you know, David Hume and and some of the ancient Greeks and that sort of thing. But Nietzsche was my first introduction to what what is typically called continental philosophy and it was a it was a kind of an epiphany. I mean it was so different than the kinds of philosophy that i had previously read right it was emotional it was about human life it was not about you know how do we know what is true you know it wasn't about questions what you know how do we know the good you know plato type questions right it wasn't yeah. that sort of thing it was it was these people are idiots kind of language right yeah and yeah he, yeah he, he was quite brute he force was in his very words, direct he? and very colorful mm-hmm. and reading it and and i still continue to enjoy it both in terms of its ideas but also just because it applies to your life. Like you can do things with it. (laughs) You can connect it to things that are going on in your life right now. And not in a kind of a astrology sort of way, which some philosophers have that where it's, you know, the the words are generic. And so they connect to anything, right? It's not like that. It's real things that happen to most humans. And so continuing to read it, I, I noticed some things that were very specifically seemed to be applicable to entrepreneurship. They reminded me of some of the situations I had had in startups or in investing. And, you know, it just sort of clicked that way. Many of those were kind of the the characterizations of what he called leaders or, or he would call them great men or heroes. And he wasn't, of course, talking about entrepreneurs. I mean, the, the entrepreneur of his day was a shopkeeper or in the extreme, a John D. Rockefeller who was kind of a nitty-gritty turn the screws uh, you know industrialist and it, it wasn't really about disrupting in the same sort of way that we think about it today and so he didn't have a high regard for either of those categories right one was kind of the bourgeois the other the other was so alien to him so he was talking about artists and writers and philosophers and maybe occasionally political leaders or or cultural leaders right but many of the characteristics are the same: Someone who wants to make waves in the world, uh, someone who met, wants to change the way things are. Um, one his ideas thing apply there? One thing I noted
0: was, I believe it was Reed Hoffman. He wrote your forward there, and he pointed out that that connection between the entrepreneur who's looking to replace the old which was the same thing as Nietzsche in the sense that get rid of the old and bring in the new. The old is, is you know, we don't need that. We need to, we can revolutionize and become, you know, find that self-becoming. And, and I, I thought that was an interesting connection to entrepreneurship in the sense that there's always a goal to, to invent new.
1: Yeah. So, and we we talk a bit about kind of the progression of a person through that, right? That we, we often start with, you know, what we might, and uh, we can talk more about this later if you like, but what, what we might call the, what Nietzsche calls the camel stage. And it looks a lot like stoicism. It's really just doing what you need to do and buckling down and doing it. But then he says, we progress to what he calls the lion stage where, and he refers to the holy no. So where you start saying no to the world. And I see this in a lot of entrepreneurs, right? Where they look at what's out there and they say, this is wrong. Like the world shouldn't be there. And that might be because the way they're, Target competitors treat their employees as bad, but it also may just be that it's inefficient. Like the way things are done, you know, we look at bureaucracies and large companies and the way they do things. It's like, why do we do it that way? And by the way, there probably was a good reason for it originally, but now it doesn't make any sense. But the issue is that many people get stuck at the no and they don't like what's going on and they oppose it, but they don't have a good way to create new values. And that's what he calls the child mode. And it's a lot like the Buddhist notion of beginner mind or something like that, right? Where you really have to you have to be pl- almost playful to be able to think about how the world could be different, to have a vision, to come up with a vision for changing the world and disrupting it in a way that will actually work and, and catch on.
0: Something that I liked about when you shared the advanced version with us was how you structured it. To me, it seems like it's almost like a, I don't want to say a playbook, but definitely something you can go to and reference from the sections you have in from strategy to leadership, uh, culture building, things like that. What sections or, or passages in there have you found that were most applicable or related to experiences that you had in your entrepreneurship or your entrepreneurial well, journey? Uh...
1: A couple of things uh, that you that you bring up, you actually brought up a lot of things right there. And uh, one of them is that we didn't actually intend it to be a playbook. I mean, the best playbook I know of is uh, a couple of friends of mine and Brad's, Will Herman and Raj Bargava wrote a book called The Startup Playbook. And I send that to, to entrepreneurs because it's like, okay, here's situa- situation, here's what to do. And they don't hem and haw. If there's a couple of good options, they give you the couple of options. It's very much about how do you do this the way experienced entrepreneurs would do it, right? But we didn't start that way at all. We started with kind of, here's some ideas and here's what we thought about those. And the thoughts are much different than playbook because they're, they're usually situations where there's no good answer. There's just the issues that you have to think about and how do you think about that? And so what we're trying to do is get people to think, not to just act. Because entrepreneurs, you know a lot of entrepreneurs, so do I, they're people of action. What that means is that you can get absorbed in the, so absorbed in the action that you forget to stop and think. And sometimes you really have to stop and think deeply about what's going on. And by the way, Reed makes, makes such a great point of that as a generic introduction to the book of it's, it's how you go about thinking about these things.
0: Yeah, actually, I just want to quickly step back. The word playbook was certainly the wrong way to phrase it, but it's, it's, you know, if you, almost you could find those, the
1: applications within them, and then be able to, yeah,
0: That's to right. stop and, and think. And
1: so, that is another thing, though, that you brought up in asking the question. You know, I, I'm not taking on new companies to advise, but I do advise a couple of companies formally and and many, many others informally where they're friends who are entrepreneurs, and I advise them usually on hikes. And one of the things that I find kind of almost hilarious is that. They'll have an issue, and I'll say, Well, you know, there's we have a chapter on that. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And so the things kind of there's no attempt in the book to be comprehensive, it doesn't have answers to everything, it doesn't have, doesn't even address you know, anything consistently, you know, it's categorized, but there's no idea that you'll read this book and you'll know what you need to know about entrepreneurship. It isn't like that at all. But I don't want to avoid your question. I I do have a few sections that I think are particularly indicative of what I'm hoping people get out of the book. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read parts of the quotes. Is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. Go for Um, it. Cool. So one of the interesting ones is a chapter called Style. And What Nietzsche starts with here is he says, culture is, before all things, the unity of artistic style in every expression of the life of a people. Now, he's talking about European nations and people in the sense of, of a, an entire culture, right? But you don't have to really stretch too hard to think, well, companies are like that, especially as they get a little bit bigger. But, but even when they're small, if you have 20 people, that company has a culture. It's, it, can, it can be often very distinctive because both the leadership has emphasized it and the people have been selected on that basis, right? But what does artistic style have to do with any of this? Okay, and the narrative, the entrepreneur narrative in this chapter, uh, was written by a friend of both mine and Brad's, longtime friend uh, Tim Manuel, who both of us respect a lot for his, I think among many other things his thoughtfulness he's he always thinks hard about stuff he doesn't let anything go uh, mm. he's very analytical and he tests things out and he didn't agree with this at with our essay at first and i won't get into what the chapter talks about but he didn't agree with kind of our what we tried to assert in the chapter and then he started writing his narrative and that was fine we we have several narratives where the person basically disagrees with us right and that's right. that's yeah, part yeah. that's part of this book is that you're supposed to think not find an answer in right. in the book eventually you need to find the answer as an entrepreneur but we're not going to always give you an answer and tim started writing his narrative and realized that part of what we were saying he now agreed with. He realized what we were really trying to say. And so, he evolved his own thinking just by reading the quote in the essay and thinking about it, right? Well, the reason I bring up this chapter is because that's exactly what we want the reader to do, right? We want the reader to say, that's not right. And then think harder about it and say, well, actually, though, part of it is or go the other way, right? Read what we say and think, yeah, they've they've got it. This is pretty obvious. And then go, wait a minute, they miss this. My situation is different. And how is it different? I think we accomplish that with a lot of the chapters. And to that end, the meta example is a chapter called Obsession, And the beginning of Nietzsche's quote is, the passion which seizes the noble man is a peculiarity without his knowing that it is so. The use of a rare and singular measuring rod, almost a frenzy, the feeling of heat in things that feel cold to all other persons. Does this sound anything like any entrepreneurs you know? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I'm kidding, right? Right? No kidding, yeah? Right, no kidding. Now, here's what's yeah. interesting is in a fairly late stage of the book, I don't know if you know this, but Brad has written on his blog quite a number of times and he talks about this regularly about the, the difference between passion and obsession. Foundry does not invest they don't intentionally invest in people who are merely passionate. They're looking for someone who is obsessive about what they do and mainly about right. their customers and about what the problem they're trying to solve about their organization. So they want obsession, not passion, because passion can be misdirected. It can be kind of all over the place. It's an intensity without necessarily having any focus.
0: Okay. It feels Where, like passion is is on an emotional level, but obsession is just to a whole new level. It,
1: yeah. So there's a difference in degree, but there's also a qualitative difference in, in what they are. So people often talk and talk about entrepreneurs as being passionate, but and, and Brad makes this distinction, right? So, so we're at a fairly late stage of the book and editing it. And, and one of the things I decided to do is I wanted to go through the book and make sure I fixed any references to passion where we really meant obsession and that kind of thing, right? And naturally, I got to this chapter <laughs> because Nietzsche had used the word passion. And right. as I dug into it more, I realized he was talking about obsession, but using the word passion. And then I went into the etymology and it turns out the word obsession is really post Nietzsche. So he was looking for a word that he didn't have. And so even we, as the authors of this had a later thought, the the thinking process, it made us think harder about what obsession was. And so I gave you the example of Tim Enwall and his thought process, but even as the authors, we missed things and, and had further thoughts that really reinforced what we were th- trying to do and realizing that Nietzsche was trying to do it too. So I thought that was really fun, right? Which is that even as the authors, we didn't see all these things going on. And we hope, the, we hope that the readers also notice some things that we didn't notice. In hearing this, I think it would have been
0: really fun to be
1: a fly on the wall,
0: to hear the discussions and debate between you two as the authors in putting this together. And probably the evolution of your own thinking as this came together as well, puts the brain to work.
1: Yep. Well, what's funny, you know, Brad and I are very, very different people. And yet what's funny is that intellectually, we often land in the same place independently. And so the discussion on this was pretty simple. It it was, and by the way, we mostly talk in email. I don't know how well you know, Brad, but he prefers email to anything. (laughs) Okay. So we just do email, but the discussion was, you know, we, we had a discussion, but it was pretty brief because he's like, yep you might want to go here and do this. And it was pretty straightforward. And he saw right away what we were trying to do with it. So very Um, cool.
0: I want to ask you some other kind of categories of questions about your experience and, and not all related to the book, but for the listeners now, where can they find this book and when is it available? And
1: yeah, what can they do? Sure. Thanks for asking. So first of all, it's available for pre-order now for the Kindle edition on Amazon, and it it actually will be delivered next Tuesday, May 25th, and the paperback edition should be available at that time. There will be a hardcover and an audiobook coming out. I don't have the exact dates on those. Apparently, the audiobooks are always delayed a little bit from the initial publication, but they should be sometime in in June. Nice. I have a feeling this is going to be a hardcover on my shelf soon, so I look forward to that. Oh, I appreciate that. Brad blogged about it yesterday and we did get a a number one new release tag. I don't know if that means anything, but a few people are picking it up and uh, I'm excited about that.
0: Nice. Well, you guys are onto something. So any final thoughts about the Entrepreneur's Weekly Need
1: Oh, I'm sure I'll come back to reference it a few times because of, in the rest of our discussion, I, it, it, so many things remind me of things we've said there that, that I'm sure we'll get there. The thing I'd want to leave people who are listening to this and our and potential readers of this is that it's a different take on things one of the first reviewers that got back to me said, you know, I hate business books. And by the way, I'm the same way. I don't read many business books, but this isn't really exactly a business book. And I kind of really enjoyed it because of that, right? It takes a different tack. So if you don't like business books, but you want to try something and the idea of Nietzsche rings a bell or strikes a chord, give it a try.
0: Yeah. And I think for those who aren't big on philosophy, yeah, there's the not
1: stretch. there's not much philosophy yeah. in here. It's more about philosophy as thinking and as a way of thinking about things. And so the Nietzsche quotes, we give adaptations into 21st century English. So you don't need to understand the Nietzsche quote in its original form. Only about two percent of the words in the book are Nietzsche's. So it's not it's not like reading Nietzsche at all. Nietzsche is actually not that easy to read. <laughs> so yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Well that's
0: uh that's excellent. That's excellent. So I'm really curious about the career you've had both in entrepreneurship and as an executive and and in some of the computer science stuff you do. Um, one of the things that I found in doing a bit of background research on you is you speak on AI and issues in and around neuromorphic general AI safety. <laughs> yeah
1: where can we go from there? What is your experience and what do you you see coming? Sure. So my interest in this goes back to college era. I took an AI class at MIT as an undergraduate. I was extremely disappointed. It seemed like they were completely missing the boat on how to make it work. Oddly enough, many people in AI still see things the same way as the folks did then, but not all. I've for a long time thought that if you're familiar with the term reference implementation, a lot of times a vendor- Uh, I have to say, no, I am not. Okay, so a lot of times a vendor of a- software product like an operating system will build a reference implementation of the hardware so that the underlying system that controls it uh, has somewhere to be demonstrated. But they're looking for people to build their own hardware. So Google's products are actually popular, but in some ways, the Pixel brand is the reference implementation. Like here's how to do Android right. And we're going to price it twice as much as you're going to charge so that you know it doesn't really compete with you. right? So that's an okay. example. Sidekick had a reference implementation. right? They were hoping. They were supposed to be an operating system company. That goes. That goes. That dates me a little bit. That goes way back. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember that. The thing. sidekick. Yeah. So, reference implementation is an example of how to implement something, and the human brain is a reference implementation for AI, right? I mean, it's it's the one example that we have of what we might call general intelligence. It's the only hmm. example we have. Yes. And yet, they keep trying to build. People keep trying to build AI in different ways, instead. So, neuromorphic AI is in a very general sense is why don't we build the way we already know can work (laughs) and in essence replicating somewhat
0: as much as we know about the human brain and how it learns yeah well that
1: this talk could go a long distance in this direction right so we don't want to get too deep into that but but yeah basically i mean there's a question of what's the right level right we're not going to we're not going to actually implement it in biology because that actually is already done. We're going to implement it probably in silicon, but then what's the right level of abstraction to deal with it, right? Do we have neurons? How uh, biologically realistic are those neurons? Or maybe maybe we don't have neurons at all. Maybe it looks more like a deep learning network, right? Which by Mm -hmm. the way, does actually look a lot like the occipital cortex. And so there are all these questions of what's the right level. And I got very interested in this whole area Uh, in the early 2000s. I uh, started taking a couple of graduate classes and I ended up working with a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, uh, Randy O'Reilly, and he and I started a company together called eCortex which does these kinds of simulations and you know we were probably the first deep learning company there ever was right and consistent with the rest of my career is probably 10 years too early and the company still exists it does research uh, programs for onr and other other defense agencies on very basic but it's very basic research on cognition and simulations the company wouldn't have succeeded at a product level. The technology we used was way too biologically realistic. And okay. so the processes were not efficient, but they also capture some things about cognition that typical deep learning nets do not.
0: This conversation could definitely go down the, um, yeah. you know, a deep path. <laughs> and, and, and as somebody who is complete you know, simpleton when it comes to the world of AI, it is fascinating. At a high level, what are are the safety issues that come with the discussion around AI, are they founded? Is it something that we should be concerned with? Or is it something that is capturing eyes on headlines? Yeah,
1: it's, it's complicated. I'm one of those who divides the world of AI into those attempts at automating the world, just like lots of other software and IT products do. And those, those efforts that are attempting to truly recreate human cognition or something that's a superset of it. And in fact, I have a paper in Informatica about how pretty much it needs to have human cognition, human style cognition at a minimum to be able to be any kind of a threat to us kind of existentially. So there's there's two kinds of threats, right? One is things like autonomous vehicles running over pedestrians and credit scoring systems being racially biased and things like that, right? right. Where where it's it's really just automation and it does something that we don't want because it's running autonomously that's one set of things but none of that presents unless we, unless we actually uh, have never seen the terminator and decided to just connect it to all the nukes <laughs> right, right okay. unless we unless we do something truly stupid like that you know it's not an existential threat to humanity or anything like that the other thing but the uh, mm-hmm. the other side of it is if we recreate human cognition and we actually are successful at doing that then it's fairly easy to see that those systems will just ride Moore's law until they're superior to us. And there's a risk there, right? That kind of we're no longer the top, top of the food chain on earth. And right. this, this is the longer term issue, but many people think it's not that long term. And I happen, be, I happen to be among those that thinks we're decades away from that rather than centuries. And so it's a fairly short term issue. on a larger scale. And so, so that's one of the issues I think about. And I think about it specifically with respect to neuromorphic AI, because I think that's the thing that will be first successful. In other words, I don't think all the other attempts are, I, I can't prove that they won't be, but I don't have a, a hunch that they're going to be successful. And I think that recreating the system that we already have is probably going to get there first. And so that's, but it's different than the other kinds of approaches. And so it has different characteristics in terms of how you teach it to not kill us, basically.
0: <laughs> so from what I'm hearing is, is one, you're, you're choosing neuromorphic. That's the horse you're picking as the path, which will be perhaps the most successful. Yeah. Form of it's, AI. it's the
1: path I'm picking. It's the one I know the most about. Again, I think if you have an, if you have a system to copy, you're probably going to get there first. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And there's no, IP, there's no IP issues, right? I mean, we, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: This question's more for entrepreneurs out there and our our listeners. You see a lot of pitches where it's just, you know, they have to weave AI into yes. their pitch and, you know, it's so easy to balk at that and just be like, yeah, okay. You too. What advice would you have for entrepreneurs and those who are building companies about AI and and to actually deliver that statement with credibility?
1: Well, if you're going to deliver it with credibility, it can't just be something that you've pasted on. There has to be real value brought by using the AI. Truth of the matter is almost everybody's using AI for something now, not because of the pitch, but because they have to, (laughs) if you're going to try to innovate. Most data analyses, most systems are using using something somewhere that has an AI turn. I've never been a big fan of grabbing onto the buzzwords and overdoing it. But if an investor is skeptical of this, you're going to have to have a story that actually goes deeper than just, oh yeah, we use a deep learning net to do this. Like You need to show why it's creating value that wasn't there before. And alternately, and I think this comes up in many cases that I run into, start with the business value usually that has nothing to do with AI, right? The technology technology is typically not the lead thing that's bringing the value. It's something that's a problem that you're solving and have that as part of the vision. In other words, someday could be a year from now or three years from now, when a lot of people are using our system, whatever it is, or our device or whatever, we'll be able to analyze this data using some of the AI technologies that are out there. And we'll be able to get insights that you wouldn't have been able to get because the data is going to be so large that Humans wouldn't be able to analyze it in any reasonable way, so it can either be it can either be something that here's the print envelope feature. Uh, one of my favorite analogies is the print envelope feature. I started using Microsoft Word back in the early 90s specifically because it could print an envelope on an HP laser jet without me me having to figure out how to format it, right? And you can have AI as a print envelope feature, and the investors will say, all right, that's, you know, there you go, where it actually literally does something that you couldn't do otherwise, or have it as part of your vision, meaning that here's the value that AI could bring later, and that wasn't really available before we had AI.
0: Right. I appreciate that kind of positioning in the sense of saying the data we're collecting with the application that is building business value as it is now, three years from now, we'll have a lot of opportunity to create future value applying AI technology. To me, that's a hell of a lot better than saying, oh yeah, we, we have AI or we're going to use AI because well, we probably well, you
1: don't. You probably don't, or to the extent you do, everybody has it. And I mean, the money is green, so maybe you 'll find investors who are not sophisticated enough to realize that, but that 's like playing chess ho- by hoping that the other person's going to make a mistake right right yeah, <laughs> I mean you know that 's not the right way to pitch your business. The right way to pitch your business is to is to if you want to use a buzzword, make sure you know exactly how it connects to your business and make sure you don 't overdo it if it 's only a minor thing
0: yeah you know something i 've learned and, and I think it 's applicable to this conversation here is. I interviewed a gentleman, his name is Rick Rule, and he's a, a longtime resource investor. So investing in gold and, and silver uh, resource mines, things like this. The way he explained how he evaluates those that are at the helm of a company was so nuanced to the fact that he would say, if, if you've got a director who is familiar with this certain kind of geology and rock and it's not related to the rock you're mining, then the person's out. They're of no value. I don't want to see that. You better show me somebody who knows and has spent their career on a porphyry system, as an example, to bring a mining tournament. And I want to reflect on that because I think that there's no point in trying to bring somebody on an investor who's just going to give you money if they actually don't have the the sophistication to actually know what you're talking about, because is there long-term value in that person other than their check right now wouldn't you want to play at a level where you could sit down with somebody who's
1: very sophisticated and and say yeah i get what no, you're saying it, and then i'm not sure i agree with that i mean in some cases it very much depends on the business but whenever entrepreneurs ask me what characteristics they should be looking for in investors my question number 1 is always what color is their money okay <laughs> because yep. if the money if the money is green That's the main thing, (laughs) okay? Now, going beyond that, though, people can only have so much expertise, right? And furthermore, when you bring on investors depending on your level of experience as an entrepreneur how much do you want your investors guiding your strategy for your business um, this can be a very touchy question in fact that's, a, one, that's a good it's point it's one of the areas where investors and entrepreneurs get into the most conflict right which is that the investors think the strategy X is good and the entrepreneurs are convinced that it's not and you know the investors have all this experience but experience is by necessity about the past on the other hand and I, you know I, Brad is the investor I've worked with the most As an investor, you know, Brad has expertise in a lot of domain areas, but he he typically doesn't use it, (laughs) right? What Brad has a lot of expertise in is what kind of things do companies need to do to be successful as companies? How do you build an organization? How do you pick a VP of sales who's not going to fail within six months, right? Hmm. Does that have a lot to do with the domain? It really doesn't. Now, Sure, if you're building a device and and you're going to get it manufactured off sea, overseas, and you bring on a VC who has some experience in that, that could be helpful. But a be, but it, but just as good would be a VC who knows some directors you can bring on as independent directors and help you with those sorts of issues or has some contacts in the right place who, who can be not just people who are generalists who happen to have a little domain knowledge, but actually knows the experts, right? So that's, those are very that's, different approaches.
0: Yeah, and I think too, you know, and, and I'm gonna bring the weekly Nietzsche in, into this in, in a passage that I read in there about there's no one right way to do something and there's not always an answer. But in thinking that, I, I do want to say, but I, more to my point was that if the money's green, there's more value than just the color of that money. In, in my thinking, if if you can take it to the next level and find the people who are willing to write checks who have uh, can bring the value of experience or connections to play to that level, but then you make a good, good point as well. Will those people come in and think that they know more than you as
1: an entrepreneur? That's right. I, there are better and worse investors, right? For an entrepreneur. And and again, it, it always differs depending on the context in the particular business or and the particular entrepreneurs. But the kinds of things that I've found and from the entrepreneurs I know have found are the most valuable is investors who, A, don't panic easily. Okay. Okay. Investors who are supportive and understand that they've already made their bet. <laughs> right? Right. So they don't lose their... Lose their stuff just because something happened. They actually help you fix it because they know how to deal with this particular people problem because they've seen it thirty times before, right? They know people who can help you in your particular problem as opposed to trying to be the expert for everything. And if they have a sense of this of of what your strategy should be, you already know what that is as opposed to kind of they they start dabbling in your in your strategy at the first sign of difficulties, right? They don't. When yeah. you're on your first pivot, they don't tell you what your next pivot should be. They they help you help you with process for figuring that out, right? So you know. And by the way, we ha- as I mentioned, we ha- we have a chapter on domain experts and the importance of, of the potential importance of having a domain expert in your business. Interestingly enough, the domain expert chapter, the narrative there is by uh, one of Brad's partners, Jason Mendelson, but it was about a company he started, not about a company that he invested in. And the domain area, as it turns out, was shareholder representative. Because because Jason was a lawyer. And so having a domain expert is crucial, but it doesn't need to be your investor.
0: Yes. Okay. I could go down so many more questions there, but something else that interests me about your background experience is when it comes to acquisitions and acquiring technology companies, you've done, as I understand, due diligence or, or helped advise on the due diligence process for when you're acquiring companies. But I mean, it can be code is code. The average CEO will not understand what's under the hood there. And, and then again, it seems that perhaps even a CFO may not. What advice do you have for those who are acquiring companies that come along with significant software?
1: And you're asking from the perspective of the acquirer, is that correct? Yeah, I think so is a starting point. Why not? Sure. Yeah. So, well, so first of all, let me position this. I most of what I did there professionally was during the dot com era, so it's twenty years old or so. I don't know that it's really changed that much in terms of what what one would do. I mean, what, so with technology diligence, the acquirer has a variety of objectives, right? The main one, as always, in all due diligence is to look for reasons to say no, if they change their minds. (laughs) (laughs) And so there always has to be some of that stuff. And by the way, there's always warts. So it's pretty easy to find things like that. But more substantively, there's really two areas in evaluating technology through diligence. The most important is actually the technology organization and leadership. So it's not the actual technology as primary, it's been said about HP back in their Halcyon days, the thing that they figured out that nobody had, else had figured out that made them successful was that they knew how to keep building new technologies and turning them into products. They didn't have a technology and a product and just keep building new products out of that same technology. They knew how to commercialize new technologies and build them, right? Mm-hmm. So they had, a, they had an organization that understood innovation, right? So I use that just as an example of you can't have that kind of thing quite in a startup because they're new at this, but the organization and how they think about innovation and technology development and all that. Yeah, that, I see where you're going there. That yeah, That is crucial, right? Is, are these a bunch of people who've never really written anything before, but they hacked together a thing and it sort of works and, and now we've got a product? Or is it a company that actually like thought hard about what they were building in advance? Either way can work, but you need to know which one you've got. <laughs> Right. Right. And it's interesting. You can go on either end of the spectrum, right? In the one case, you're going to need to bring in some people who understand building technology that scales and that's reliable, you know, and that can be maintained, right? In the case where they've just hacked something together, they've built a product, got it out there, and people like it. Now we need to make it so that it continues to work and we don't have all these support issues and you can sell it. The other side of it, if you have people who are very methodical and they've built something that's out in the market and, and it's well-designed, they may get themselves disrupted within a year because they're not that innovative. <laughs> they need some crazy people. They need some niches right, in the organization yeah. to go play some crazy games and do some crazy things and watch what the world is doing and what kinds of things are coming down the pike. So knowing these things about the organization and what it's like and Crucially, in a technology organization, there's usually a personality or two that's potentially a problem. Those kinds of problems take a variety of forms. A common one, for example, is that you've got a young, very smart technologist who's never managed anybody and is going to be the manager of the engineering team. Right. Oh, she's never done that before. (laughs) And right, yeah. that's a weak spot, right? Cause you don't, and you have to evaluate the ego, those kinds of issues. How is this going to go? How receptive is that person going to be to be being replaced and put into a kind of individual contributor role. So all these kinds of things in the organization. Now on the technology side, it's really a matter of just assessing maturity. Through some work that I did with my company Ecortex, I learned about the technology maturity curve or or grading scale. Okay. Um, and you know, there's different levels and they're fairly specific about what each level means and you're like, okay, this is a level five. Here we are. But I did that sort of more intuitively back back in those days. And and the idea is, you know, how mature is this? How mature is this? I always looked at code. I know how to look at code. It didn't matter what language it is. You can tell crappy code or good code, no matter what the language, right? You can see that they care about it or that they didn't care about it. That they knew okay. what they were doing or that they didn't know what they're doing. One time, I actually I was doing tech diligence and they showed me some code and I saw a Y2K bug, which tells you about what time. Yeah, time yeah, was. yeah. Yeah, I'm like, hey, you have a YTK bug there. <laughs> so that, you know, uh. they they knew I was looking, right? The main point of that is they knew I was looking. And later on, here's an interesting one. De rigueur, I looked at their licenses, you know, are they are they careful with their open source licenses that they deal with? Do they do they have a bunch of GPL code that's actually going to make them have to open source their whole product, right? Oh wow, uh, okay. You know, yeah, you say, oh wow, that's a whole other conversation that, we
0: could get into because I didn't even realize yeah, there's a
1: that's something that issue started coming up in the early two thousands, and some companies are very diligent about it and they pay, they teach their engineers what to do and they pay attention to it. Others just let the engineers download whatever the heck they want and they engineers have no idea what they're working with and you can really cause yourself problems it doesn't usually cause problems while you're just in the heat of of the business but in an acquisition it's almost always in the reps in fact they'll they'll call it out they say you won't that you haven't used any gpl or copyleft thing so these are the kinds of things that yeah. you know, I'd look at any patents that they'd file and probably 90% of cases they weren't actually using the patent they just talked about them but those those are the sort of things I'd look at on the on the ip side and, you know are they innovative is the work that they're doing here genuinely innovative or are they just kind of getting by and so those are the kinds of things that I I would look at
0: really interesting really interesting it's a lot more nuance there that I that I appreciate and something that I I recall back my background's in finance and doing M&A work and I always you know I look back and it's like we never put enough thought into the technology debt of bringing something on acquiring a, a company and recognizing the amount of work it's going to take to keep that piece alive or to keep that thing going. And I think that that for perhaps for entrepreneurs or management teams, they, they fail to realize that code is not just something that you set it and forget it. It's constantly needing to be taken care of, if
1: you will. Yeah. It's not, it's not a thing. It's a process. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) uh, Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's a, or as Nietzsche would say, it's a becoming. Um, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, that's right, and you know technology that's an interesting problem. if you're doing things right, you always have some, and the question is for an acquirer if we're still on that topic, for an acquirer, the real issue is what are you going to do with the technology right If you're buying it primarily for the team and you're probably going to shelve the technology, well, you don't care that much. If you're going to integrate it into your own products, like fairly tightly. Well then you need to look at it very closely and there's a good chance that you're actually just going to want to rewrite it. And by the way, I can promise you, I think I can safely promise you that if you give the developers the opportunity to rewrite what they've built, they will be so excited you'll that that in fact I'm just making this up now, but it occurs to me (laughs) that the best way to keep the technical team intact is to say, we're going to give you the opportunity to rewrite all this stuff. No kidding. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Because, because I mean, you know, you never do it right the first time, the second, the second time, you know, you kind of fix a lot of the problems, but you still miss a bunch of stuff. And after that, though, you really know how to build it right. And sometimes you're going to have to rewrite it. But the other thing is that if there's a lot of technology debt and developers in one-on-one sessions, they will tell you about the technology debt. Because by the way, if there's a lot of it, they've been telling the product managers and management about it forever. They've been complaining about it and they'll always complain about it. They're engineers. They like things to be perfect. Yeah. Um, but get the engineers in on one-on-one sessions and they will tell you all about the technology debt. You don't have to like drag it out. of them. <laughs> um, Yeah.
0: You know, yeah. They and, might have. A, and so, yeah, okay.
1: and, you know, and you can ask it in better and worse ways. You can say, well, what would you change in the code if you had to, uh, if you if you had the opportunity to, and they'll tell you. And so you can assess whether that stuff is really important stuff or not with the progression of agile one has to be a little bit careful because Agile has, in my opinion, been taken too far in some cases where the customer's immediate needs are the only priority. Right, okay. I I understand where that comes from. And in some ways, there's a truth to that. But if you think, think more deeply about it, as my book encourages you to do about everything, right? Your code is eventually going to end up being a kludge tower, right? It's going to be a bunch of hacks that just did did things quickly because we had to get this out. And eventually you start... I
0: just want to reflect on that because I remember my former CTO, Jason Faulkner, who's out of Sydney. Him and I would battle over, I'd be like... We need this for our customers, and 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 you know we would be arguing over this customer facing stuff. And he's looking, and going, "You have no idea what is behind the curtain here, and how many other things need to be in place to make sure that this is going to be stable." So the resources of of as he would say, "deck chair moving" on the kind of the front customer facing stuff versus the technical foundation, other stuff that was taking resources. Frankly, as a young entrepreneur, I didn't realize that, and. Too many years later, I'm now realizing good yeah. really I mean, you could, of-
1: you know, it's, it's like many things. You can do that for a while, but you can't do it indefinitely because things start to get shaky. The underlying structure doesn't make conceptual sense anymore, right? And so imagine you went in, you made physical modifications to your car. You know, you replaced, replaced various parts with certain third-party parts and, and you tweaked them a little bit and did things a little differently. And you put in a few things that were custom and you sell the car. The person who buys it can't just take it into the repair shop and get it fixed, right? Because there's yes. no there's no conceptual structure to the whole thing. You've changed a bunch of stuff that doesn't fit the underlying conceptual structure of the original vehicle. And so to fix that, you either have to understand what that person doing the modifications had in mind or you got to start over. And so you do eventually reach that point where it becomes a Jenga tower. And, you know, if you pull another one out, it's going to, things are going to come, come crash into the ground with a big noise. Very interesting.
0: I I almost want to, well, I want to request another interview with you to continue down this, this topic, but we're pushing on time here. So besides your book, the, as the latest that is coming out, what other books have you enjoyed? What do you enjoy reading?
1: And and what's been, I have a little button that I I don't really wear it, but uh, it says I read dead people. So, uh, yeah, so I've actually recently read a couple of contemporary nonfiction books and been kind of disappointed. So I tend not to read recent stuff. I like to read stuff that's outlasted the ages. And and so just from the perspective of the book, if people read the book and they'd like to read more, like to start reading actual Nietzsche, I usually recommend Human All Too Human, which is probably one of the more accessible books. Uh, A lot of it is aphoristic. So they're just, a lot of it is just quotes. It is not the first thing that I read, but the book that I'm reading now, nonfiction, is Ralph Ellison's Living with Music. I'm a big jazz fan. Ralph Ellison, perhaps better known as the author of Invisible Man, but he was a musician as well as an author, and he writes about the jazz era of the 1950s. And uh, so that's kind of that's kind of fun and really interesting perspectives. And finally, a very uh, something that's very old and very current that I read last year was uh, Daniel Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year. It was fascinating to read this about the year 1667 and to see how much it had in common with exactly what we were going through and the same types of attitudes, the same types of disagreements, the same types of kind of government struggling to figure out what to do, polarizations Mm -hmm. um, and food supply questions, you know, and Even the things they talked about, which they sort of knew what things would be a bad idea to do and which things we relatively safe, <laughs> even then, right? It's the okay. same thing, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the only thing they didn't have is the hope of a vaccine. So their only hope was that the visitation would end as they called it. You know, of course it was in those days, it was every pretty much everyone believed it was brought by God for some punishment, but it was really a fascinating history. And Defoe's not without his opinions as to what they should have done. And you can see his equivalence today in terms of what uh, what people think we might might do or might have
0: done. Yeah. That's really cool. I, I do like history. Um, we did an interview with a gentleman who wrote a book called "The Big Reset," as it seems to be popularized now, but spoke a lot about the history of of money sure. and of fiat currency. And man, I just love diving into that stuff. You know, back even to the twelve hundreds. So, and what's that saying or the quote? Uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes.
1: I think is. Fitting. Yes. Well, of course, Nietzsche would say, with the eternal return, everything comes back and plays itself exactly as it did before. So, um, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, you can nice. you can play it that way too. And and really, yeah. the, this this rhyming is definitely something we can notice.
0: Very cool. I've I've really enjoyed our conversation here. I'm looking forward to seeing the success
1: of the entrepreneurs weekly Nietzsche. Any final thoughts for the audience, David? You know, uh, we talked earlier about obsession. And I think from an investor perspective, I mean, I think this is one of the more interesting things, which is that most executives and entrepreneurs have some sort of obsession. And I think it's, it's the diving deep part is what is it that they're really obsessed about, right? If you're trying to evaluate a publicly traded company and you see that the CEO is very hard charging, that doesn't mean she's hard charging in the way you want. <laughs> right, so you want obsession, but then you have to look at what, what is the real obsession underlying it. Is it is it fame? Is yeah. it ego? Is it making the stock price go up? Is it bringing value to customers? Is it the product? And some of those can be good, and some of those are bad. But but understanding the obsession of the CEO in detail is, I think, maybe one of the best ways to evaluate any company.
0: Awesome. One other thing: How can people follow your work? Oh, Where gosh. can they find you?
1: I guess my Amazon author page or my, I put most of my stuff up on jilk.com. So in one form or another, it's a little, just a little website with my publications and some of the things I've worked on.
0: Great. I'll put the notes there, put that in the show notes and otherwise, thank you so much. Thank you, Corey. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.